Hi, Christy. Hi, Maddie. So we have we have reconvened once more. Uh, now, surely the richer for our experiences to uh, to have a talk about what we thought of the stuff that we shoved in each other's faces and went look at this. <laughs> so, um, would you like to go first and tell me what you thought of the whole plate? Certainly. Okay. So the whole plate we've gone through this, but we'll go through it again. Is a YouTube series that goes through you know, film studies and various information about film using Michael Bay's Transformer franchise as, like, a template. <laughs> it's by... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's by this woman named Lindsay Ellis, who is, like, a new hero of mine. I love her very much. <laughs> She's great. Um, and, and she... this, 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 this was kind of like a backdoor to me getting you into her stuff. <laughs> but I thought... You know, there was plenty of stuff that, that, um, that Lindsay's done, like... You know, she's done like a, a video essay about the Phantom of the Opera movie and yes, like I've the producers like, and various things. There were various things I could have recommended, but I was like, actually, no. Do you know what? I'm going to do the self-indulgent bullshit and I'm going to make you watch it's, this thing. It's fun to do, like, right? You feel good about it. Like, it's like distantly adjacent to one of my interests. So fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Uh, well, she won me over in the first video, which is Transformers in Film Studies, when she started talking about how critical analysis isn't set in stone and how we talk about cinema and how we view cinema um to how make cinema makes us feel is just ever changing i really appreciated that approach and that openness about it because so much i feel if you ever get with like you know cinema movie nerds uh they just kind of treat it like it's a solid set in stone thing and it's really not so it was nice to have an alternative uh approach to that <laughs> uh, i also really really appreciated her insistent that films that these films sorry that the the transformers films franchise shouldn't be ignored ignored just because they're quote bad michael bay films <laughs> you know <laughs> yes there's there's it, it, you know it, it's a rich seam of um of film discussion can be mined from them i think it's fair to say yeah and it, i mean from my own experience of discussing like films and televisions and stuff and this is 100 percent going to be a generalized statement um but a lot so often it feels like it's men who go well it's not a good movie so who cares don't watch them it doesn't matter you know like that's the response when i'm complaining about something it's like well <laughs> then don't watch it and i'm like well no shit like i'm trying to tell you why i stopped watching it like fuck <laughs> like you know um and I, I agree with with miss ellis and that and i get that argument you know but these those these films these transformer films make bank and they have gone on to influence you know franchise production in hollywood and they should be looked at no matter how upsetting that can be <laughs> you know so i'm just glad she's out here doing her thing <laughs> And the second video is one I really enjoyed, and it's about like a tour, a tour theory. And she goes on to say it's like her least favorite area of film theory. And I'm I'm fifty fifty on a tour theory, you know. Like I'm kind of I'm I'm kind of with Lindsay on this one because I I did film studies in school, and part of that was learning about auteur theory. And it's just like I get it, but at the same time, film is so collaborative. I don't know if you know. Yeah. I think it's kind of one of those things where, like, I think sometimes people who are too into auteur theory, they put, like, sort of too much stuff onto, um, I mean, I'm not saying that it's, like, it's related to auteur theory, but I did, I, you know, because obviously I'm, 
<clears throat> like a big part of my online experience is Transformers Twitter and people are saying like you know oh uh, someone like pointed out like a robot design is like oh this is what Michael Bay should have had the uh the Transformers look like in the movies and I'm just like if you think he gives fuck one about what the robots look like you are giving him too much credit <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's there's an element of that in auteur theory it's like you know yeah. I think every even the even the most auteury of the auteurs, I think sometimes they just do it for a paycheck. Yeah, I mean, half like half the time I'm borderline repulsed by a tour theory, and then the other <laughs> half of the time I find it really fascinating because there is a draw to looking at someone's body of work and like finding common themes or style and choices, and it's fun to look at and talk about that stuff. But I am not a big fan of pitting film after film against each other and acting like the biggest basis of engaging or understanding or analyzing films or comics or anime or anything that has, you know, kind of a serialized because at that point you're looking at someone's films as a serialization. They're not individual pieces of art. They're like an entire <laughs> chapter book. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, so... <laughs> right. Christy, your son, uh, Charlie, uh, I recall you telling me this is uh, he he views like the Studio Ghibli films Yes. As, as as basically the Ponyo-verse. Yes. Like, the, there's a character in every Studio Ghibli film who is Ponyo. I would much rather listen to that <laughs> for hours than listen to some someone talk about, um, like, Hayao Miyazaki's work in terms of auteur theory. <laughs> I would much rather listen to Charlie's Ponyo theory. I'm with you there. I, you know what? In the bowels <laughs> of my Tumblr's draft files, I have, like, three unfinished uh, <laughs> Charlie if Ponyo you, crossover you... stories I need to... If somehow you start a, if you ever start a patreon and that is a t you know getting hold of those is a tear <laughs> i will be first in line <laughs> yeah that's pretty amazing that's like one of my favorite things that's ever happened in my life is <laughs> the realization that to charlie ponyo exists in every single studio ghibli film <laughs> it's so good <clears throat> uh it's like it's like hitchcock's cameos yeah. in his films yeah it's, it's amazing. like where's where who spot the ponyo <laughs> Okay, but get back to, we're getting back on our tour <laughs> theory here. Uh, sure. So, like, you know, I love Stanley. Stanley, I always say his name wrong because I just talk weird. I say Kubrick, but it's Kubrick. <sighs> I don't know what's wrong with me, but Stanley Kubrick's films. Um, and, you know, I watch his films and I see his style in his films, and I can list off, you know, common, common elements of a Stanley Kubrick film. So, like, what uh, one-point perspective, long tracking shots, protracted sequences, symmetry of the mezzanine scene, you know, steady cam usage, blah, blah, blah. And I'm a giant nerd, so I find it's fun for me to be able to watch those films and thread together their influence upon each other and, like, the evolution of him as an artist. But I'm not okay with acting like you're not going to understand Eyes Wide Shut if you haven't seen Full Metal Jacket, you know? And that's what's really <laughs> irritating. It's true, but that's what's irritating about is, a is tour I, theory to me. Is I is Eyes Wide Shut the one with Tom Cruise and the sex mask? Yeah, yep. Right, okay. Have you seen that movie? I haven't. It's uh, I've good. seen trailers for that movie. But, <laughs> but that's... I was kind of put off by Tom Cruise and sex mask. Understandable. Very understandable. <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give you that. You know? <laughs> but in her video essay, Lindsay says that she was turned off by the approach because it seems like an excuse to feed into egomania, you know? Since film is a collaborative effort over the yeah. vision of any one director and i i agree you know but obsessive behind the scene knowledge of a director's like stylistic choices as the end all be all reading of films and a body of work i just absolutely hate that 
and it's just such a an approach to media in general that I don't understand or connect with, you know what I mean? Like, what's that movie coming out? Maddie, the virtual reality one, uh, Player One. Uh, Reg- Reggie Player One, yeah. based on the book by Ernest Klein. What the fuck's that? <laughs> <laughs> like, that looks like the epitome of what I hate about... <laughs> Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is, Christy? What? It's the Lego movie, minus it being a gag, and therefore the charm. Uh, I, I don't That's know. That's literally what it is. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I just, I feel like I've let, been let burned me, in let me so just, many... Let me just say this. Let me just say this about Ready Player One. I used to work in a bookstore. They literally could not pay me to read that book. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Please continue. <laughs> I, I mean, I, what was, I saw some really good i probably even retweeted it reblogged whatever someone saying how it looks like a soulless engagement with media where it's just listing stuff instead of like having any kind of emotional response to something oh yeah i saw that yeah yeah that's what it feels like and that's what a tour theory when you get like talking to people that are really into it that's what it feels like sometimes <laughs> like they're gonna go list the kumbrick things in the films and then i'm like okay but then what like but how did it feel <laughs> you know anyway <laughs> <laughs> like I get the allure of or and the origins of a tour theory and it's a hat I can occasionally or I like to occasionally put on especially when formulating my own understanding and expectations of creative work but I'm much more into the Roland Bot death of the auteur or death of the author camp you know what I mean I rather yeah. hear varied interpretation and view films as individual units and that really goes for TV and comics for me too you know, like Grant Morrison, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it, man. <laughs> that, that's fine. I can't I, do I, it. I, 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 I can't judge anyone for that, really. I, I tried, and I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I think you tried, that's the I main thing. I did, you know? Okay, so the third episode <laughs> is your favorite one, so it's about why it's so hard to remember what happens in Transformers. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was, yeah, I think that probably was my favorite, just because it's a thing that's been at the back of my mind for so long, <laughs> just because, I th- I'm pretty sure I said this to you when I recommended it to you, but, like, I can remember, like, comedy sketches that I saw once when I was nine, but I can't remember anything from these films that I saw. I... It's just, and it was, like, just to see someone sort of talk about precisely why that happens, for me, at, at least, it kind of felt a little bit like a vindication. <laughs> Of my position. Well, you know, once you brought it up, talking to me about it, I was like, okay. And then I started thinking about it. I've seen the first, I saw the first two Transformers films. And it was a little bit cheating because I kind of recently semi saw it because my kids were like bugging me about it and they hate it. And I was like, nice. So, (laughs) so I was like, well, I remember. And then I was thinking about the second movie, which I've only seen once when it came out. And I was like, oh my God, I remember the giant dong balls or whatever (laughs) scene you know and that's literally it oh no and there's like some female killer transformer something like that that's it yeah that's all i got weird metal she's got like a weird sort of venom tongue yeah that's all i got and i was like oh (laughs) shit what So when I was really excited to get to this episode, and you know, and she explains that it comes down to Michael Bay's technique and choices, and how he shoots his films, and how he presents film, 
it's it's basically it's so busy his frame is so busy your brain can't process information which is legit that's understandable about these films you know what i mean like that seems you're like oh yeah yeah no that makes a lot of sense <laughs> i have something i was been thinking about something that kind of segues away from that so if you can bear with me we'll see if i can gather my <coughs> no, my memory my i got my notes but we'll see okay so after watching all five so far the whole plate videos I was really enjoying it, and I was like, uh, ah, I'll go look for video essays on, on a silent voice, you know, which is what I wrecked you. And I was like, ah, this will be fun. And I found a few, and they were informative, but they were all done by, to my knowledge, um, men who did voiceover on top of the images of the film. And so combined with <laughs> – I'm going to get burned here. They have a kind of a wordy – pretentious approach of explaining <laughs> the concepts of the movie and that being overlaid onto images that weren't strictly related to what they were talking about it was hard to comprehend i was like oh so we're having a michael bay situation here where my brain can't <laughs> seem to comprehend what they're trying to tell me because the imagery you know um and so i got i ended up rabbit holing down youtube video essayists okay and you know this is what i discovered <laughs> I had noticed a pattern. <laughs> and so a lot of the time, female video essayists, like Lindsay Ellis, tend to physically insert themselves into their video. Whereas a lot of the, the male analysis video essayist guys tend to only do the video overlay. And I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> like, what's going on there? Okay, that's and true. so um, I think that I've I've kind of noticed a similar thing. A lot of the times, guys like in instead of putting like themselves sort of orating to camera, they will have like an avatar, like you know, a drawing that is meant to represent them, so they can that they can just put up uh, while they talk. And yeah. there's there's another sort of there's another YouTuber I like called uh, Dan Olson, and he actually does you know he physically appears in his videos and talks to the camera. Uh, but that's like a recent thing because if you look at his older videos he actually in place of himself orating to the camera he had a puppet version of him that was like <laughs> a box with with glasses on that would like a very very simple like mouth opening closey puppet and um yeah i've i've got to say i've actually noticed that it is i've i kind of like noticed something similar where you know like women on youtube are far more likely to actually ap appear like put themselves in the video yeah. Whereas for a lot of, for a lot of guys, it'll they'll just have like an avatar of themselves, or and, like just in, insert that and then talk. And it's like you just like you know part of me's like you could have just done this as a podcast. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> There's no real visual element to this. Well, I, I this is all just a coming mushing together of a bunch of recent things I've been thinking about. So, you know, I got the Lindsay Ellis, the whole plate, and then a rabbit hole on YouTube, and then I'm also <laughs> writing, I've been writing, and I'm working on my third edit with an editor <laughs> um, for a, a write-up I'm doing on a manga called Complex Age, and in the process of writing for that, I went digging in a bunch of my old uh, books about, like, fandom and stuff like that, and there is this really, really interesting anthology and it's called gender and reading essays on readers text and context and in it literary th um theorist david i'm gonna say belch but that's not his name david billich <laughs> um <laughs> surveyed male and female students after he assigned them famous literary works and all he did was he after he asked the students to explain the books to him 
And through this process, he realized that men tend to read for authorial meeting while women tend to read to participate. So men respect author by giving only facts and like that are relevant to the plot because that's what the guy asked for. He's like, okay, repeat back to me what you read. And then when women were telling, you know, about the story that they read, they presented the story as an experience and they like relayed emotional information rather than just this is what happened. So-and-so did this. They said this. They went here. And I don't know. It just struck me as so funny that in this context of like video essays, it's kind of similar to the point where a lot of the women insert themselves into the video, into the space that they're talking about while men kind of sit at a distance and are visually not there. That that kind of feeds into the the uh, the disparate kinds of fandom that tend to, you know, that don't uniformly, but um, sort of tend towards like almost uh, like a gendered divide. Um, there's, a, there's some friends of mine do a podcast called Civil D, which talks about like yes, social I've issues in relation to, to fandom stuff. Uh, and the first episode that they did was about like sort of various kinds of fandom and they talked about like um the you know um cur- curative fandom versus tran- transformative fandom yeah and the way that uh it's sort of male fans of something are overwhelmingly more likely to be on the on the curative like psych uh curative is curative curative. the right word yeah Cur- so like they like yeah canon Whereas... and listing and who's going to be who in a fight based on facts and stuff like that yeah and then you have transformative fandom, which is more sort of like um, fan works, as you know, like it, it'll be like zines and fan fiction and fan art, and that's seen as kind of as as a more female interaction with uh, a work. Yeah, it's kind of. I think there is there is a lot of that as well. And it feels like you can even strip it down and kind of go in towards again like a tour theory. That's what it feels like to me when you really get down to it is that a lot of people will be like, well, this is the tour and this is what they're saying and this is what they're saying is important about this movie. And I'm like, I, that's cool, I get that, but I'm going to watch the movie and still, you know, don't give a shit what they want me <laughs> to do with it. You know what I mean? I don't know. I just thought it was really, really fascinating. And especially with like these Transformers films, which are so big and loud and and giant and <laughs> they just keep coming. <laughs> you know, it's kind of an interesting... <laughs> Because you get down to it, she, in her video, she pretty much, you know, says that they are our tour films. <laughs> they are. They have, you know, a stamp of a Michael Bay movie all over them. So it's just kind of interesting to me because I don't have yeah, an emotional it, response to this at all. <laughs> it, it's easy to see where they fit in, like, a larger body of work. Yeah. So that's my, uh, <laughs> the whole plate spiel. I, I've made a lot of notes and I've got lost. I don't know where I am anymore. <laughs> One thing that I was curious to know um, was the uh, the video that she did on uh, <laughs> gender and as it relates to giant robots, because um, because ov- obviously like I'm a fan of Transformers and I like it when there are also girl robots, <laughs> um, and that you know that that has been uh, quite a point of contention in the fandom, as I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah. So I I just wondered if you ha- if you sort of had any particular thoughts on the sort of giant robots and gender video that um that was kind of there was Lindsay kind of like talking about like gender an introduction to kind of like to gender theory yeah as as it relates to transformers and these films well that one is supposed to be two parts and the second part's not out yet the first part was kind of just setting up you know what is gender theory feminist theory in cinema what you know can you talk about and went over 
you know, Laura Mulvey and the male gaze and all that stuff. And uh, I really can't wait for the second one to drop because I think she'll get more into how that works within these films in particular, which is going to, of course, be fascinating. Because one of what's the one big thing <laughs> that people like to rag on Michael Bay for is, is a depiction of women in his films is just almost cartoonish, you know? <laughs> like, you want to get mad, but kind of you're kind of like, well, I mean, it's obviously so not how it is it's kind of like okay (laughs) like you know what i mean that's my response to it like i want to get mad and upset but i can't even because i'm like i just don't care enough like i don't i I don't care enough and i haven't seen what she say there was only so far one female robot and i don't even know if the film was like hey this is a female robot because she doesn't talk at all (laughs) chrissy do do you know what that female robot that was in one of the films you saw so (gasps) what so so that's so that cycles back to, to episode three. Sh- no, the the pink one who's a motorbike. I saw that. Yeah. Is that in the yeah, second she's movie? In, she's, in the, she's in the second one. Oh my god. <laughs> she has no lines and then gets shot in the head. Oh, I need a moment. Hold on. I really don't know what I saw. I can't think back on. Oh my god. Ooh, ooh. Okay. Wow. I've never had that happen to me before. For me, like, I have an okay, I'm not, like, I don't have an amazing memory, but when it comes to, like, media and stuff, I can usually pull out, (laughs) or, you know, I can dig around in my brain and kind of be like, okay, I remember that, I remember that. No. Fucking blank slate, no. Nothing. (laughs) Oh, my God. I don't Uh, even remember the name of the second movie. Like, Uh, I can't even keep track of the names. Revenge of the Fallen. (sighs) What is that? Um... Which I only know because it also had a toy line. <laughs> and I, like, some of the toys from it are, are okay, and I want them, so. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm get back to it. I, as far as I, what she had to say about it, I liked a lot how she talked about, I mean, part of it must be covering her ass, because she's a woman on YouTube talking about feminist theory in a, <laughs> a film, so she's probably like, hey, guys, let's not attack me. <laughs> but um, I like how she talked about these critiques and these ways of looking at films and feminist theory, it doesn't exist to make you uncomfortable or feel bad about something you like. It exists so we can, you know, truly understand not only the film, but our own culture that makes the film and stuff like that. And I thought that was very, very, very true. And the core, you know, part of of gender theory in in film. So I can't wait for the second episode because I think that'll be the more applicable I, I imagine it's possibly going to touch on the fact that in the fourth movie, I, I haven't seen the movie, but my friends, one of my friends has shown me the scene from it, <laughs> partly because they couldn't believe that this, this happens in a Transformers movie. But basically, the plot stops while the guy, like the, the character who is dating Mark Wahlberg's character's daughter is like, is older than her. And he has like a laminated card with, with him at all times with the specifics of what's what's known as the Romeo and Juliet law and stuff on it like that to basically explain why it's okay for him to be dating this girl that's way younger than him and shit. You know, my friends had just played me that scene out of context, but basically, like, they said to me, like, the plot stops for this discussion to happen. It doesn't add anything to the film. Just, <laughs> like, why is this why is this here? And I think that's probably a fair question you could ask of a lot of the stuff that happens in michael bay's transformers movies it's like why is this here why is, this... Why, is Bum- why why is bumblebee pissing on john totoro why is this happening 
yeah. you know, why why does why does Devastator have wrecking ball testicles when <laughs> none of the none of his like constituent vehicle modes have wrecking balls? <laughs> why is that happening? <laughs> it's a mess, isn't it? Oh my god! I actually um I read I read an art I read um a film article uh, a few years ago that was talking about why don't we see the kind of movie parodies that we're used to, like you know stuff like. The stuff that they were like specifically citing was stuff like um, the Naked Gun films. I was just gonna say Naked Gun, uh, Mel Brooks. Yeah, you know, a lot of like Mel Brooks, like uh, like Spaceballs, yeah, uh, air- Airplane stuff like that. It's like, why don't we see films like that anymore? And they sort of cited things like the Scary Movie franchise and its offshoots and imitators. And it's like, I think part of it is the stuff that they would. It's like, look at Michael Bay's films. One of the robots pisses on a guy. Where where do you even start if you're trying to parody that? <laughs> you know they've got wrecking ball testicles. That again, how do you parody that? <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's kind of that's kind of a big part of why they you know they, they didn't do anything for me for a number of reasons. But part of them is they kind of feel like self parody, but not in a fun way. Like yeah, in a, they're like self parody, but in like a mean way. <laughs> it's weird because it feels like again. I'm not deep in the world of Transformers, but it feels like Michael Bay doesn't, he doesn't care about the nostalgic aspect of this, you know, franchise about the robots. Well, doesn't care about the robots. Know, to, doesn't to care his credit, about. He, his, he has actively said he doesn't give a shit about the robots. Oh yeah. So he just, he doesn't care. And that's fine. He's up front with that. Okay. But then it's still like, give me your money. Come see my movie about this thing you like. I'm going to make fun of you pretty much for liking it by making the content behave, you know, present it as it does in these films. And then, like, it just seems mean-spirited, you know what I mean? Like, I don't quite understand it. Like, I think you can be over-nostalgic to the point where <laughs> something's, you know, ugh. But <laughs> at the same time... Oh, it, like, th- this is the thing. I'm, I'm super deep into the Transformers fandom. You, you can't tell me anything about people kicking off over nostalgia. You know, yeah. Um, the 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 um the Transformers cartoon that I introduced you to, Robots in Disguise, uh, that contains a an iteration of the character Grimlock, who is yes. a, a robot that turns into a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Okay, well, this is and something I know I can talk about. Okay, yes, Grimlock, I know who we're talking about now. Like, and Grimlock is in the cartoon. He's green and he's like a big sweetheart, and he's really strong and he's actually quite nice. And that's very very different in appearance and personality from the classic or as is known in transformers parlance g1 grimlock and people hate that wow really because i also know g1 grimlock as according to the transformers movie buster just so you know who is the grimlock fan in this household (laughs) um loves both of them no problem he has no problem with both of them you know what I mean? I think he likes the older one more just because he talks the way he talks. But that's yeah. about it. But yeah, but um, again, just to give you just to give you context, um, people, I say people, mostly guys in the Transformers <laughs> fandoms, they have pitched a fit over the years over such things as uh, Optimus uh, Optimus Prime not being a lorry, but instead being a gorilla when the Beast Wars <laughs> era kicked off. Even though that was an entirely different character. That wasn't Optimus Prime. It was the character was called Optimus Primal, which is funny because he's a gorilla. But he's he's not Optimus Prime. He's like a distant descendant 
like not even whatever robots have instead of genetically like conceptually he is like the distant descendant of optimus prime so it's okay that he's a gorilla and not a truck yeah so everyone else in that show is an animal so it makes yeah it would be kind of weird if one of them was just a truck i don't be like and there is actually an episode where they find the original g1 transformers and they find optimus prime (laughs) and it's as if to say look they're different people will you please stop whining um, and then in 2001, there was a show called Robots in Disguise, yep. where Optimus Prime turned into a fire engine. And again, people lost their shit because, they, oh, he's supposed to be a, a truck. It's like, he's still a truck. He's just a different kind of truck, <laughs> for God's sake. Yeah, so, I, I don't you know. know. I mean, the power of nostalgia is one of those things that's really, really interesting to me. And it just feels like these films completely... <laughs> They want they're they're using it to get you there, but then they're disregarding that you know emotion and feeling completely at the same time. So it's really weird. It feels that that's kind of what a parody is. So like it's weird to go see a movie that's just like that's what it it, it is and one, it's complete. You know, it's entirety. One thing that I'd be interested to see come up in in the whole plate because as I was saying, like it's an ongoing series. Um, one thing that I've always said, um, like to this day, I do not understand the decision to give Michael Bay the Transformers franchise. It's like, right, you're Hasbro, you want to make movies, you want to make movies with Michael Bay. Why do you not give him G.I. Joe? Did he do G.I. Joe? That's like, that's like all about the military. But they gave him Transformers and then they did G.I. Joe movies that didn't do as well. So I'm just wondering if at any point um, Lindsay is going to bring up the, the G.I. Joe films and talk about what ways that they might have been, been influenced by the Michael Bay Transformers films. Yeah, it's like G.I. Joe, the Transformers, and then the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. Yeah, and I don't I don't think he had any invol- had, had direct involvement in it, but I kind of want to say the ethos of the Michael yeah. Bay Transformers movies, I think, informed the Gem and the Holograms movie. Yeah. And that's why it was the way it was, as in, it was boring, and there wasn't a magic computer. And it, it, like one of my one of my friends went to see it, and like just and I my phone just blew up with this like tirade when they got out, and it was like because like I think they said the misfits weren't even in it. Yeah. And if you've not seen Gem and the Holograms, a Gem and the Holograms film without the misfits would be like if they made a Transformers movie without the Decepticons. <laughs> it's like. You know, and and it was just this like really like boring thing about oh there's a girl and she's in a band and then the band gets famous and then she gets too big for herself and it's like we've seen that we've seen that way too many times. This was our opportunity to have a film about a girl who's in a band but she's also got a magic computer that her dad made. Yeah, and there's another band who wants to kill her. <laughs> like we could have had that. I... Why why have you done that, Hasbro Studios? I don't you big get fun. it. Oh, do you know what Hasbro Studios also made? They made the Ouija board movie. <laughs> Oh, that was it wasn't one. it wasn't called that, but they they made a movie about their product, the Ouija board. Oh yeah. Because I don't know if you know, but the ha- Hasbro owns the Ouija boards. Wasn't there a Battleship movie? Yes, there was. Again, I don't know if that's Hasbro, but oh. I think again, again, because this is what I'm wondering if Lindsay is is gonna do like. I mean, she's got to get to how it it's affected Hollywood, and it absolutely has. Yeah. And I don't think the Battleship movie would look the way it did. Yeah. There's the thing, I don't even know if a Battleship movie would have been made if it hadn't been for the Michael Bay Transformers yeah, movies. Yeah, exactly. Like, stuff like, like, 
like Clue. Yeah, you can understand how Clue can become a movie because like this is like a tradition of like you know lo- like locked room mysteries and you know yeah stories. So, you know like Clue is is a good sort of companion piece to something like Murder by Death. <laughs> yes. Like Battleship, yeah. There's this like naval warfare films, but in in you know if you just make one of those, it's you've kind of just made a naval warfare movie. It kind of you know it, it could have been divorced from the battleship name yeah so they were like what if it's aliens it's like yeah okay sure what if sure you know why not i don't get it i think i think rihanna's in it like if you if you can put rihanna in a in a movie about battleships fighting aliens and not make me want to see it you fucked up somewhere yeah right (laughs) i mean all of those things that you've listed are are again it's like how to explain it it's like, so my kids are kids. <laughs> they're two and four, and they're really into Transformers. And they know that there's live-action movies, because they see the toys when we go, when they see, you know, commercials here and there for the new movie that was coming out, and blah, blah, blah. And they think it's for them. And I tried telling them, I said, I know it's Transformers. That's how it sells itself. But it's not for <laughs> you guys. They're not thinking of you. They're thinking of people who are now 40 years old or whatever and thinking oh this is what they would like as a film but they're wrong (laughs) because one they don't understand how nostalgia works and two they just assume if you're an adult you want a certain type of movie when you know that's not true either and four three they want to sell these toys to kids but then it's still not a movie that kids can relate to or understand or enjoy even you know and and if you were going to make a gem movie you could have made that into a big you should make these films for kids. You should. And then you can make them, and then, you know, adults can come too. I just, I don't understand why it's not, that's not the business model. Well, they, they recently announced, like, the, the next sort of wave of, like, uh, what the the, the new um, Transformers TV show is going to be coming up after uh, Robots in Disguise, after Robots. I think is in its final season now. Um, and there were people, like, as, as there is every time, there are guys on the on twitter complaining that it's like oh it's going to be for kids like yes of course it's going to be for kids transformers is a kids thing that's why it's like toys and shit that you can buy in the supermarket i try to be really understanding and i think you can take media for children and and turn it into media for adults and it's you know okay but i do not understand the mentality of saying oh it's gonna be for kids i mean say what you will about star wars fandom but at least kids have a space there and they're welcome there you know i don't i don't know why it's these older ones that i don't get it it's come up like you know um hasbro have like announced figures and you know i don't mean like figures as in toys i mean figures as in like financial figures um and stuff like market research and stuff that they've done has shown them that fewer kids are buying transformers and they they really want to address that so they really want to you know focus on you know they, they you know they're still going to do what what's called like the masterpiece line which is the really sort of expensive like high-end yeah like lots of like little fiddly engineering like the the masterpiece line <laughs> I, that they do i know those as the toys at the toy store that my son wants that i can't let him have because he will break it within three seconds <laughs> I've got I've got one of those and I'm afraid to touch it and I'm 32 so yeah that's a good call man yeah. um like you want a rescue robot so, let's go get a rescue robot 
yeah, I'm, I, I've got rescue bots. I could just sit there flipping them back and forth for hours. I know, that's hours. what they do. They love it. There's guys who complain about the existence of stuff like rescue bots, and it's like, again, it's this... I mean, Christy, you'll know. I mean, um, me and Christy met in a comic book forum like circa 2004-ish, <laughs> around about the time that the Crypto the Superdog cartoon came out. Kicked off, yeah. And I remember ha- having to explain to a 35-year-old man who was angry about it that he is possibly not the target audience for a cartoon about a flying dog. Isn't it wild? Isn't it wild when people are like, well, I don't like this. I'm like, well, shit, son, maybe it's not for you. Fuck! <laughs> like, if, if I'm in Hasbro shoes, the last thing I would do is end up like the US comic book, you know, like the, the sort of the, the like DC and Marvel, where it's like, oh, we, you know... These people have way more disposable income. Let's cater exclusively to them. Oh wait, twenty years have passed, and now our figures are in the fucking toilet, and we have to get bought out by multimedia corporations to essentially underwrite our comics as like IP mills now because we stopped selling to kids. But where and now are they getting this research we... from? Because for a very long time, and probably for the foreseeable future, who has the most disposable income are teenage girls. I do not understand. <laughs> where they yeah. they their figures and who are like what type of study and survey is happening here i mean to, to hasbro's credit they like it, it is as part of the same presentation where they revealed that kids are buying less transformer stuff they also like finally <laughs> acknowledged that hey women are also into transformers <laughs> and have been forever slow clap for them i guess yeah because like because like the last the last few um the last few toy lines have had um fan created characters and whenever there's been the option to create a new character the character's been female and this has been this has come out of like a popular vote that gave us um the character of windblade a version of which turns up in rescue i was just um, gonna ask about robots in disguise windblade was was created by a fan vote the fact that she is female and a jet and has a sword um was all decided by fan votes and then the one after that was um a vote for a combiner and again we had a female combiner so that's not just you know that's six female robots who turned into a larger female robot <laughs> Steven Universe awesome. that that was another thing that I was going to wonder if it's going to be touched on sort of more in the second half of the robots and gender the whole plate video yeah because um, she's she's in- into all the the like fandom of transformers i assume because that's why and I've watched other videos where uh, she brings I know, it up. I know Lindsay's into. I think she's. I think she was read the comics and she likes some of the cartoons. Yeah. Um, she's not kind of into the, the whole sort of like toy side of things, as far as I'm aware, which is fair enough because. Yeah, but if you're into those things and you have an interest in them, then you know information's probably something you know or aware of. So overall, it sounds like you quite enjoyed uh, the whole plate, I, and you're on board. I really for where did, it goes and I'm, I'm really stoked to see more. I want to see more about how she's going to approach these films through different, you know film theory stuff i was a little i wasn't confused at first but the what what it ended up being versus what i initially thought it was going to be were very different and i was very pleasantly surprised and happy that it was that way not how i was thinking it because i'm dumb and i got confused so (laughs) what what were you thinking it was i don't know i thought it would be more tedious i guess you know what i mean like i thought it was gonna be (laughs) i don't know okay leave me alone how'd you like my thing (laughs) Moving on. Okay, fine. <laughs> Welcome to the second half of the show. Um, mm. So, the thing that you recommended for me was uh, a movie, uh, an animated movie from Japan. Uh, if only there was a pithy word for that. 
um, that, that's based on a manga. I've completely forgotten to write down the name of the director. Oh, um, <laughs> so, Nako Yamato. That's the yeah. one. Already I fucked up. <laughs> right. um, but uh, Asylum Voice uh, is uh, it's a movie, it's based on a manga. Um, it's about a boy named Shuya who, in his youth, uh, bullies a deaf girl who joins his class and then it kind of time skips a little bit into the future where he's in high school and he's kind of become like a social pariah based on the fact that he bullied this girl in the past and she had to like change schools and and like for very for various reasons now i will say this shuya yeah who's one of the main characters he spends a good portion of the movie wearing a t-shirt with the label sticking out at the neck and it drove me fucking crazy because i hate that i wanted to physically reach inside my laptop screen and took his label in on his t-shirt from like through the neck hole and nah but anyway moving on (laughs) yeah he always has the tag sticking out and then his school uniform he always has one half of his shirt hanging out yeah that i'm not um, that i'm not supposed to but the label thing was driving me crazy um (laughs) But anyway, let's move on. Okay, so I've got my notes, and I'll read out what... <laughs> my The first note I made about this film was, why the fuck are the teachers acting like the kid isn't deaf? What the absolute fuck? Why is there no special needs schooling? What the fuck? <laughs> now, and that becomes less legible as... As, as it goes on. <laughs> it becomes capital letters and less legible as it goes on. Uh, I'll, I'll, send you, I'll send you a picture of it <laughs> so you can see. But that was kind of like my whole thing because it's, it's about this girl named uh, Shuko who gets transferred into uh, a class in, in an elementary school and um, she's deaf. Um, she wears hearing aids. When she first comes into the class, she, she communicates with the other kids using a notebook. And it really, it really just like so many things. It's one of these things where it's like adults are fucking useless <laughs> because it's like... <laughs> They put they they put the deaf girl like they make her go to choir practice. It's like why, you know? It's it's one of those things where it's like you couldn't just let her go to the library for half an hour or just like read a book. <laughs> I mean, well, maybe it's not addressed in the film, but maybe it's something she wants to do, or you know, you don't want to ostracize the kid just because they're deaf. They you know they're going to music class, but maybe they could find something else for her to do, or you know, maybe she likes singing and all that stuff but but a, a big thing with the movie and this is covered more in the manga that the film omits for the fact that it's for a japanese audience and they're already aware of this but um the s- japanese school system are not conducive for anybody with disabilities of any kind i was i was gonna say that was certainly the uh, the impression that i got the, the teacher just... handles it all absolutely terribly he scapegoats his own kid when it's it's really his responsibility. You know what I mean? Like he, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's pretty clear to see that the the elementary school class teacher is like check he out. Views, <laughs> yeah, he views kind of having a deaf student as an imposition that you know basically dislikes like having to change the pace of his teaching to accommodate a deaf student, and he doesn't really take it serious. You know, he doesn't take the bullying that she receives seriously until like the principal turns up in his classroom. Oh, and then then it's suddenly then it's suddenly an issue. Yeah, um, he's more of a jerk yeah. in the manga too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it basically um, it's kind of like everyone, like a lot of people bully shuko but it's kind of it all gets put onto uh shuya because i mean you know to be fair he does bully her a lot like yeah he pulls out he pulls out her hearing aid like so hard that it causes her ear to bleed 
So he, you know, he's like far from blameless, but everyone's kind of everyone's like most people in the class, and certainly in like the circle that the movie focuses on, is complicit in Shuko's bullying. Yes. But when they're presented with an opportunity to kind of like absolve themselves of the guilt of it, they all put it onto Shuya, and he kind of becomes like a pariah if like for the rest of his school career. Yes, and then which... he becomes the person they all target and bully. And, and again, the teacher sort of also scapegoating uh, Shuya for his shitty teaching gives tacit approval to like the bullying that Shuya has to deal with. Yeah. So the the main sort of the main part of the uh, the the movie focuses on the the high school years, which is about uh, it starts off with Shuya sort of seeking out Shuko because she's obviously she's transferred to a different school. He wants to sort of see her again and like apologize. But the first time she sees him. She kind of, she runs away because she doesn't, you know, obviously she's got like a negative association yeah. with him and she kind of doesn't want to deal with it. But he sort of chases it, he sort of chases her down and apologizes to her and he does it partially with sign. He's, you know, he's learned to sign and uh, it kind of comes out that he was going to kill himself oh. as a result of the <laughs> the bullying that he'd had to go through. And again, he kind of, he kind of comes back from that by kind of sort of realizing I think it, for him, it's a, it's partly like a realization that he he hasn't really done right by like the harm he did to Shuko really and killing himself. I don't know whether it's kind of like killing himself would be kind of wouldn't be sort of reparation enough. He feels like he has to actually properly do something to apologize and, and try and fix it. the The movie's got like it, it makes some very like very sort of like elegant uh, stylistic choices. Some of which I think will be borrowed borrowed from the manga. Like um, one of the things. Um, when the film's kind of from Shuya's point of view, like all, all the other sort of characters in school have uh, like big purple crosses yeah. on their face. That's in the manga, yes. To, to, to kind of like, it, it's like a visual representation of the, the isolation. I love he... the scene in the classroom where everyone has the big X on their face and he looks over at people who are just talking and he over voice overlays, you know, assuming they're talking about him and what they're saying about him and stuff like that. I think it's a really, really accurate depiction of social anxiety. <laughs> I'd say that isolation is probably one of the main themes of the story. Like both the manga and, and the movie. The isolation that Shuko has as being a deaf person in a world that where like the majority of people can hear and it's, you know, a world that's constructed, you know, like a society that's constructed on the assumption that everyone can hear. Yeah. Like the, the challenges that there are for a, like a person with a disability and also the uh, social isolation that Shuya goes through just by, you know, by essentially being made a scapegoat, you know, for his and other people's shitty behavior. And it's kind of like him slowly building a social network of, of you know, like of regaining like a circle of like friends. And it starts with, um, Shu it starts with Shuko and, uh, eventually includes Yuzuru, who's, uh, Shuko's, um, little sister who although she, she she introduces she's got like very short hair she initially introduces herself to uh shuya as shuko's boyfriend um as, <laughs> as a means to make him go away uh, and and like so slowly he sort of builds up you know and it's sort of like people from like the past sort of come back and some of it's good and some of it's not quite so good yeah. and, and sort of various things another sort of clever thing that i thought was uh i imagine i haven't obviously i haven't read it i'm planning to i imagine that the manga focuses more not sort of more but uh has more scenes of the, them in elementary school than the film has um, um so the bulk of it's still high school i think the first volume 
is entirely pretty much elementary school, and then the rest is all, you know, future like, event. One of the so one of the reasons that Shuya tracks down uh, Shuko is to give her back her notebook uh, from elementary school that he like threw in a fountain or something, and uh, he sort of like you know gives it to her. And I think he I think the implication I don't know if if it's actually I might not I might have like looked away from the screen at the wrong moment, but <laughs> I think the implication is that he's written a suicide note in it to her, and then when he's kind of decided not to kill himself he kind of realizes oh shit i just gave her a notebook and it's got a suicide <laughs> note in from me to her oh dear so he tries to get it back and it ends up going in a river which uh shuko then jumps in to get yuzuru takes a photo of him jumping off the bridge and posts it on social media which gets him suspended from school and the opening mon like musical montage like the opening credits of the film show Sh uh, shuya when he was a little boy you know, jumping into rivers and jumping off bridges and stuff. And I think that was that was quite a sort of... I imagine that in the manga that there would actually be scenes of him doing that. Whereas the movie, like, obviously, like, for time, sort of couldn't show, have a scene of him jumping in rivers and stuff. So they just made it part of this, like, one long, like, musical montage almost. So I thought that was a very sort of elegant way for the film to set up. The, the reason that people would think that he'd done that is because he had form basically yeah it's like this is the thing you are known you know you were known for doing so instead of people saying well why was he jumping off a bridge into the river you know people would go well he used to do that all the time and he's still doing it because he's weird <laughs> so i never i never looked at it from that perspective of you know explain i just you know he jumps off a bridge or it's something a high school student shouldn't be doing um you know in japan and it is a you know, if you misconduct in public outside of, in your private time, because you're wearing a school uniform, your school has control over <laughs> a lot of what you can or can't do or say. Coming uh, from an educational <laughs> system with uniforms, yes, I can say absolutely that is the truth. So, uh, I always just thought that was the deal. It's interesting you think that he wrote a suicide note at the end. I mean, maybe he, he did, or maybe that's something that's implied. I never thought of that. I just thought uh, she I was looking at hurtful memories and he was trying to, to stop her. Yeah, I don't know whether, I don't know whether it was that or if he'd written I, I don't know like the, the the impression that I got was that he'd maybe written a suicide note in it and he wasn't like he was just planning to give her it and apologize and then go and, and then kill himself but um I don't know that that could me just that could be me sort of reading into it but um maybe it was just the fact that it contained all the horrible stuff yeah he wrote when he was a kid um I mean I, I like the repeated usage of jumping off a bridge for meaning different things that this film does. Initially, it's, you know, a fun thing that he chooses to do because um, he's in part in the manga. If you read it, you'll see that he's just bored constantly, constantly bored. So he just does these things, wild things to, to spice up <laughs> his day-to-day -day life, including jumping off bridges. And then in that context, later when, you know, he's finally reunited with Shoko and she's, she's looking through this, you know, painful... <laughs> memory uh book lit here and it jumps into the ocean she or the river and she jumps off the bridge to go get it um it's interesting that that's a moment where you know he shouts her name and he can't reach her and then later on <laughs> he does eventually reach her you know i i just think it's interesting yeah. repeated uh, i did there's, there's there's kind of almost like an anachronistic order to not like the sort of the sequence of events in the film but there will occasionally just be moments that are I, I guess that you'd say flashbacks it's kind of it won't just it won't just be like you know like here's a scene of the kids in elementary school like 
you know, transferring the bullying to Shuya to allay their own guilt about what they did. And then here's a thing of them in high school saying, oh, you know, stay away from that guy because he's a bully. You know, it's kind of th- those things don't come in that order. They'll they'll show you, you know, you, you'll kind of like piece piece events together and they'll show you like little sort of little bits. Yeah, the, the film has what's what's kind of known as emotional editing. It's not linear editing necessarily, but it edits and shows you things to make an emotional impact. And it does a lot of interesting things like that. And the film does a lot of like uh, visual metaphor stuff, you know, with the big crosses on people's faces <laughs> and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, one thing I really, really enjoyed um, was the choice to have in the soundtrack, not just the score, so like the music, but a lot of non-musical sounds, like keys being pressed in the pedals of piano. Like the score is mostly just really soft kind of piano music. Um and after watching the film the first time, I was really interested in that choice because it's it's kind of unusual, you know, <laughs> to have noise in with your score instead of just the music. Um, and when I was doing my rabbit hole <laughs> YouTube video essayist thing, I came across uh, a video a video essay called um, on a silent voice, and it's called "Music is Perspective," and it's by a YouTuber named Nerdy Shenanigans, and it covers the film's use of music <laughs> and sound and sound editing in this film is just it's phenomenal and and it gave me a lot more information on the choice that went into the film and the music's done by um, a man named Kensuke Ushio and they put the microphone to record the piano actually inside the piano so it would pick up more than just the music sounds because when you're communicating uh-huh. with somebody or you're thinking in your own head it's never just a straight uh, duh, duh, duh. you know it, it has lots of background sound it has a lot of other thoughts floating to the surface you know yeah that's kind of i don't i don't know if it was intentional but that is kind of like evocative of beethoven who obviously was was a composer who went deaf and eventually composed by um as far as i'm aware what he did was he would hold a pencil in his teeth and then put the sort of tip of the pencil on top of the piano and sort of feel the vibrations through his head that's a thing that i've heard i don't know if it's true it could be apocryphal i'm not sure Um, but i i after watching you know that video essay, which is the which is the best one I found on this film, um, it made the most sense. Um, <laughs> uh, it was just a really clever decision, I thought, because it also can you know symbolize how much can Shoko actually hear, you know, because she loses halfway through the film or towards the middle of the film all the hearing in her right ear, so she she doesn't even bother wearing you know two hearing aids anymore because she can no longer hear out of her right ear at all that's another thing that i liked was that there were there were scenes with no dialogue yeah. where it was like obviously you're supposed to infer from you know context cues like the scene of um it was a uh, shoko and her grandmother talking to uh, a doctor and then a scene afterwards of shoko in her bedroom uh being extremely sad and the thing that you're supposed to take away from that i think is that you know her hearing has degraded and yeah hence why she's only wearing one hearing aid it's because yeah. the other one's kind of lost its utility because she's she's lost like she's lost like the whole of her hearing in that ear was was what I took away from it. So um, it's nice to be right. <laughs> I, <laughs> I just I like that the film makes choices like that. Like that's a big emotional thing, but they never outright talk about it. And I just I think this film again again with the editing, emotional editing and emotional you know animation to using silence to infer information. Um, to an audience, I just I think it's well, I think so well done. It's kind of what I think is really cool is because they could have just 
filmed the manga they could have just made a film you know just a, a very sort of straightforward movie adaptation of what happens in the manga but to make the kind of stylistic choices that they have in terms of sound design and stuff that sort of feeds into the story i think that's that's probably why they got like the director and the studio for it that they did yeah because <laughs> I, I remember you saying that they kind of they gave the director a lot of like freedom in terms of yeah she had uh for for an animated film an immense amount of creative freedom because usually a studio has a you know producer <laughs> and and animation <laughs> even more than <laughs> traditional cinema is collaborative and it is hard to get the ball rolling and so they were like you can just do whatever you want <laughs> like we trust you <laughs> <laughs> she's won more um, awards for them than anybody so they're like we trust you go for it <laughs> sort of the, the the story proper kind of starts in high school and it shows the like social isolation that Shuya is in the middle of and it's kind of slowly him gaining friends like uh the first sort of like friend he makes is um is a boy called Nagatsuka who he defends because like a guy's trying to like steal his bike so Shuya sort of like just says to the guy, you know, you can, you can, t the guy's like, oh, can I borrow your bike? But it's clear that he has no intention of bringing it back. So she is just like, well, you can take my bike. So he does. And then the guy steals it. And then um, Nagatsuka goes and finds Shuya's bike and brings it back to him. And that's kind of how they become friends. And it shows that, like, Nagatsuka has also been isolated just for whatever reason. It's kind of like a little bit of kind of like social misfitty type stuff. It's funny because, like, it's obvious that, like, Shuya is kind of his, his first real friend ever so he does <laughs> he does kind of get a bit jealous sometimes around other people who are like friendly with Shuya in a way but in a way that's kind of like adorable rather than yeah you know sort of worrying um I guess like the the sort of the main people would focus on is uh is a girl called Uena who was mm. in the same elementary school class as uh Shuya and Shoko and instigated a lot of the bullying towards Shoko. And so, like, like, they brought in, like, one of the things, like, in their class, um, they had uh, a teacher come in who would basically teach them to sign. You know, just, like, very, very simple. Like, you know, they, they just spend, like, a few minutes, like, once a week, lear like, learning, like, you know, very simple sign language in order to communicate with Shoko better. And Ueno, like, stands up in class and basically says, I can't be bothered to do that. Why can't we just keep writing in her notebook which for me like because like a lot of this like this this film really kind of resonated with me because you know i'm a disabled person and i sort of went through a lot of bullying in school um a lot of which was you know sort of i now realize was related to like disabilities that i have and, stuff. and you know and, and problems that i've had as an adult like where i've had to leave my job non-disabled people not being willing to do even the bare minimum to accommodate your disability which is kind of like you know which is essentially like what happens in the movie where this teacher comes in and says you know a few minutes a week i'm gonna teach you some signs and ueno is like even that's too much change for her to do which kind of feeds into like later in the film because she bumps into shuya uh while she's like handing out coupons for a cafe that she works she works in one of these cafes where they've just got a load of cats and you can just go and be with some cats and she kind of like inveigles herself back into Shuya's life almost. And it's kind of clear that he he doesn't really want her there, I yeah. think. And she's it, it sort of it becomes very apparent that she is jealous of Shuko for the attention that Shuya is giving her and possibly, you know, even was in elementary school. Yeah. And she kind of takes it amiss that 
she is, you know, quote unquote normal and she's not getting the attention from Shuya that she obviously thinks she deserves. And she's like, you know, she projects onto, she, you know, she projects a lot of stuff onto um, Shuya. And it's, it's kind of interesting. It's like, kind of sort of represent, represents like the two sort of like very, very diametrically opposed things. Because obviously the stuff that Shuya is doing is he's trying to be a better person. He's sort of striving for personal growth and to make amends for like the bad things that he's done in his past and Ueno is kind of is one of those things where it's like it's very difficult for people to strive for personal growth if there is like someone in their life who is kind of committed to the opposite yeah you know for Ueno is the case where she sort of sees it as you know her her basic her position is basically look it's Shuko's fault that we bullied her because she's different like she made no attempt to accommodate us which in practical terms was she required us to do things a bit differently which Oeno sort of see, saw as this imposition so she basically saw it as she kind of sees it as Shuko's fault that their friend group broke up yeah but their friend group broke up because they all bullied this one girl but then they all put the blame onto Shuya to save their own necks, basically. Ueno is a hard cookie <laughs> to understand. She's one of those characters that, even though you can see where she's wrong, because she is how she is, like, you go through the whole thing, and part of the reason that they were so upset with Shoko as a kid is that she would just apologize. They would be mean to her, and she would just say sorry, and they couldn't understand why she wouldn't get angry back. Or why she would just smile, you know, and later, later, later you learn on the Ferris wheel when they go to amusement park and have fun together and everything and Ueno basically <laughs> commandeers Shoko into a, a Ferris wheel. Um, that's when you learn that Shoko hates herself. She thinks that because she's deaf, she is putting a wrench into everybody's life. And so if you don't have the Ueno character, if you don't have her pushing Shoko to that, and I don't think Shoko would have admitted that to anyone except Ueno... It's it's an interesting character dynamic. I don't remember it being addressed in the film. I imagine it's probably something that gets addressed in the manga, but um, we only ever see Shoko and Yuzuru's mum. We never see her dad. And I don't know if the implication is supposed to be that her dad has left, like, because of having a deaf daughter or something. Because I know that he, he left. there are there yeah. certain, certain things in, in Japanese society where something like that would be seen as as negative and, you know more often than not the the mother would be blamed that's exactly um, what happened so I don't... in in the manga ah. <laughs> um shoko gets sick as a very young kid and um the dad's like why did you let our kid get sick what kind of mother you know lets a kid have a fever that long before taking him to the hospital and blah 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 and then he just up and leaves you know um and so shoko's mother has a very very interesting arc very interesting and the grandmother's a lot more prominent in the manga but it is alluded to part of that is just again through silence <laughs> the fact that no one ever mentions the father and the fact that there's nothing ever there makes you pay attention to the fact that he's not there you know what i mean um and again from a cultural perspective you you would kind of just assume and know and understand why he's not there yeah so yeah it was it was kind of interesting um there's th there is kind of the uh the the contrast between uh, Shuko and Ueno as characters, but there's also a contrast with Ueno and another character, and that character is uh, Kawai, who's yeah. I think I'm saying that right. Who's she's a girl who was in the same class in elementary school, and 
like you kind of never see her like actively participating in the bullying but it's like how she reacts to it is like you know she will still laugh with everyone else when someone does something to Shuko to bully her and she makes sort of no real effort to she kind of again like she doesn't really make any effort to to understand uh or communicate better with Shuko and she's kind of the one who she's kind of a little bit what is i think she might be the first one who well one of the first ones to throw shuya under the yeah, bus yeah she is because like because because when he points out that she's you know she hasn't been perfect in her dealings with shuko she immediately starts crying and she does that again sort of as a high schooler um yeah she's sort of is one of those characters who i have a lot more hard a harder time with her than i do with Wayno. yeah <laughs> let's like, put it that way because with the way no, it's with the way no, it's kind of like her kind of thing is I'm a shitty person, but I, I'm a shitty person because you made me have to be one by being different, and I'm not going to change because that's too much work. Whereas with Kawaii, it's kind of like I've never done anything wrong in my life ever. Yeah, like she only really becomes friends with uh, Shuya again in high school because of someone else because like there's a, du- a dude who wants to be friends with him. Yeah. Kawaii didn't have, you know, she she was never going to open up to Shuya. She was never going to be the, it's kind of like she didn't want to be first, almost. She was too conscious of what she stood to lose socially. Yeah. And the guy's name is Mashiba. Um, he's not in it very yes. much. I imagine he gets more focus in, in the manga. Um, yeah, he. I think he and Kawaii got downplayed, kind of downgraded <laughs> the most out of everybody, other than uh, Shoko's mother and and grandmother yeah but that's okay <laughs> it's it's the nature of the beast it's it's you know it, they're making a movie not yeah. a tv show so some things have to be cut and so the, the, i think the stuff that they focused on they, they told a very sort of complete cohesive story yeah. so i imagine that you know the manga is it's, it's just going to be extras it's just going to give you like a more nuanced understanding of certain characters i imagine that in the manga kawaii is going to come off even worse <sighs> than she does in the movie like it's she's one of those characters where you just think I think that, you know the only thing that's going to come of more focus is showing me quite how bad you are, um, and obviously you know we're we're coming at this from we're adults and we're talking about characters that are kids, so obviously yeah. like, there's that there's an element of that. So we're not going to be sort of you know we're not going to be sitting here like oh she's a bitch she should die. Well, you know it's interesting because the character Mashiba is it's it's he says something in the the film, but his thing in the manga is he's so strictly anti-bullying and hates people that bully period. And so when he learns about Shoya, he's like, oh, well, I hate you now. Regardless of the fact that he's trying so hard to redeem himself, regardless of the fact that he didn't know him then, he doesn't know, can't compare to how he is now, you know, and uh, it's just this hard line, oh, well, you're a jerk, okay, bye. You know, this complete dismissal and behavior like that. And it's interesting that the dynamic there is that that's not the right way to be either. (laughs) You know, like, you can't do that to people either <laughs> this is kind of this is this is kind of like a you know a, a story of extremes really. it, i mean that's the, i think that's its point and it's a f- yeah <laughs> it's a manga that has a really difficult storyline for a culture that doesn't usually take the time to think about how you know communicating can be different um, for people with disabilities well, I, haven't, I haven't read the manga but sort of um one of the things that came up when i was searching for it was apparently um there was a group who uh, tried to stop the manga from being published. Yeah. Because they said it um, showed the Japanese school system in a negative light. Yep. This kind of sounds like truth in advertising, you know, because, I mean, I know that there is, like, a huge bullying problem in Japanese schools. And to, to have people, almost as if as if not talking about it, 
is going to make things better. I think the reason that they go for what not what the manga serialized was that it shows the it, it basically shows like a facet of Japanese society in a negative light. Yeah, I mean Ueno's whole thing where she gets upset because she has to change how she communicates and how you know the class structure is and all that stuff is deeply deeply rooted in a lot of aspects of not only Japanese society but how the school system functions. So Ueno makes a lot of sense and she has valid points speaking as someone who is also someone who has to function within you know the same society it's not fair that's for sure um but she's even honest with that she says i it's not fair i don't have to like you <laughs> you don't have to like me you know i just i think it's interesting um because there was a lot of kind of pushback when the manga was first published um and people were like, wow, this is this is messed up, you know? And people are like, well, yeah. I think some um, group in Japan, some sign language or, you know, group, I can't think of the words right now. I think they um, really, really promoted, really praised it and said, I think they gave an award for it and everything, saying, you know, this is really elevating the discussion in our country about how people like us are treated and, like, our experiences and and things like that. And I think that's why it's so extreme is because it is a very high platform, <laughs> you know, and they're trying to cover all different ways you could go about a story like this. It doesn't want to be, you know, straight laced, black and white, but it's about understanding that Shoko is exactly the same as everybody else. She just has this one thing that's a little different. It's very, very interesting. <laughs> I don't know. I'm losing my my train of thought a little bit, but uh... no, no, I, I I get what you mean. Um, another sort of thing that I think kind of has to be talked about, especially with relation to maybe not so much like Japanese society, but into sort of maybe tradition wise, is um one of the and the you know this this should kind of be considered like a content warning. Uh, I will put content warnings uh, when I put the episode up, but um, we are going to talk a little bit about suicide, if that's okay with you, Christy. Yes, um, because obviously, as we mentioned earlier, Shuya is planning to kill himself. Sort of later on in the film, uh, Shuko attempts to commit suicide um, by jumping off the uh, balcony of her family's apartment. You know, fortunately, Shuya is there and he stops her. But as you know, while he's in the act of sort of pulling her back onto the balcony, when she sort of gets a hold of the railing, um, he he goes over and he ends up falling and he ends up in a coma. It's kind of interesting that. I want to be I'm sorry. I'm just trying to be sort of careful how I talk about it. It's like I'm not. I'm not trying to say that it's weird for Jap- a, a Japanese piece of media to show suicide in a negative light. You know, that's. I'm, I'm not. I'm yeah. not trying to say. I, I got you. I got I'm you. just saying, sort of, <laughs> um, like classically, there there has been a thing in in Japan where you know, because because if you if if you look at like the Warring States period of Japan, the the Sengoku Jidai, you know, a lot of the time, you know, if 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 you think of Japanese history, you tend to think of you know things like the Sengoku Jedi and like and samurai and bushido and stuff like that. Part of that was uh, was seppuku, which is ritualized suicide. It's it's supposed to be about you know regaining honor by killing yourself. And you know like w- w- and while that sort of code was being put together, at the same time, say like in Europe, you know suicide is seen as a sin. Suicide, you know, it's because um, like it's it's one of those things that I've always found very interesting is like because um, obviously like i'm into shakespeare so i think it'd be in, you know like a japanese version of hamlet would be interesting just in terms of how you know in hamlet hamlet talks about the fact that he wishes he lived in ancient rome when killing oneself was seen as an honorable act 
like um and instead of living in Christian Denmark where it's seen as a sin in in a silent voice it shows like Shuya Shuya's mom works out that he'd been planning to kill himself because um it's it's uh, when he was in elementary school he stole and destroyed eight uh a lot I think eight yeah eight yeah uh eight of Sh- uh, Shoka's um sorry Shoko's hearing aids and you know the, the principal came to the class and talked about it he said they were very expensive and then Shuya's mum you know once the blame gets put on Shuya Shuya's mum takes it upon herself to repay Shoko's mother for the hearing aids and it's something like 1.7 million yen so sort of over time Sh- Shuya works to replace that money uh and even like he sells like I think like he sells his bed one of the, it's one of the things that he does to raise the money and he he, he sort of leaves it in an envelope for his mum uh when she's sleeping uh, on the day that he's planning to kill himself his mum kind of like figures it out that he's that he'd been planning to kill himself and she like she sort of properly like chews him out over it and she's like you know holding his um holding the envelope full of money over a hot plate and saying that she's got to burn it and then uh and she's sorry she's got like the little sort of gas lighter um and and she ends up burning it anyway by accident um <laughs> It's kind of like there's like a there's a lot of like emotional whiplash in in the story where you'll go from like you know his mum sort of like tearfully screaming at him for you know because he'd been planning to kill himself and then it sort of segues to the comedy of her accidentally burning this envelope. Yeah, yeah. I, I like I imagine that there are kind of like you know moral guardians in Japan who, <laughs> who didn't like the story possibly because of that element to it where you know you know if, if they just want to pretend that like everything is hunky dory. Than the idea of teenagers killing themselves. That's kind of throw a bit of a wrench into that, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm, uh, suicide in Japan is so complex. <laughs> There's a lot of cultural and historical media, you know, versus reality stuff happening there. Um, when you really, really, really get down to it, in Japan, suicide can be an answer. You know, it's not an. It's not. <laughs> It's yeah, not necessarily looked at as an ending. There's a, I know there's urban legends about like salary men jumping out of office windows and stuff if they lose the company money, but I don't know if there's any like, That's true. truth to that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, it's um, I mean, it, it's one of those things where there's truth and this has happened before, and it you know, and then media gets a hold of it, and then it becomes a trope, and then it becomes is that real? You know, like <laughs> that's a that's one of those things that's just. Uh, if you live in the place, it's like not out of the realm of reality, but you're like, eh, it doesn't happen that much anymore, you know? <laughs> um, but ultimately, again, it's just suicide is viewed so differently. And their work, they've worked actually very, very hard to try to change perspective on suicide. I don't think they've, <laughs> it's worked a whole lot. <laughs> uh, I think the suicide rates actually have gone down. But, you know, it's just. <sighs> With Shoko, is she just she she's trying to get rid of her presence pretty much because she thinks she's like a blight, right? She shouldn't be there because she's causing people all these troubles. And for Shuya, it's I think it's the exact same thing for him as he just views himself as he shouldn't be there because he's only caused trouble for other people. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I I can sort of not not to sort of make things too heavy, but I can sort of speak from experience. I mean, I've I've tried to kill myself three times in my life um as you can probably tell didn't yeah. work um but like i i un- you know i understand that there can come a point where people can only deal with so much like there is like for most people there is a cutoff point where the idea of feeling nothing ever again kind of becomes a draw like you can kind of, so i can understand like in, like in in 
you know, because I sort of dealt with, you know, bullying and stuff when I was in school and, you know, and disability related stuff. So I can kind of understand a little bit of where, you know, both Shugo and Shuyu are coming from. Uh, but Shuyu especially with, like, with the isolation that he goes through, it's like, it's kind of like, would would anyone care if I was gone? Like, would anyone even notice? And I think there's an element of that for him because he's sort of been so isolated. To the point of, like, I, I think one of the things that it, it was very interesting about Shuya's character was that they actually showed that he he ends up, like, kind of maladjusted due to social isola- isolation. Like, he doesn't know... Like, when he becomes friends with Nagatsuka, he actually, like, says to the guy, it's like, are we friends now? How, do, do I have to do something? Is like how how does that work, you know? It, and it's to the point where like he is very socially maladjusted because of, he's been isolated. And that was kind of like an interesting thing because it's like if like you you can be so like starved of a particular facet of human contact that you kind of don't know how to function really. I'd say there's I mean obviously like armchair diagnosis of real people is a different thing to like like in media, but I'd wonder if you know like I there is certainly a case that you could make for saying that, you know, Shuya could be on the autistic spectrum. Which I, I know that I've talked to you about that in the past, about, you know, Japanese media. And yes. like, is it even a thing? <laughs> it, it's kind of like, yeah, again, it comes back to the extremes where you have, you know, Shuka who, you know, goes out of her way to be accommodating, almost. And, you know, and, and she does apologise because she sees... You know, she does see it as, like, a fault in herself, almost. And, you know, and obviously, I mean, you can... I mean, there's a part in the in the movie where she like um, she like styles her hair differently and she gives Shuya a present and she tries to communicate <laughs> with him verbally rather than signing. But uh, even though um, she's not able to sort of to to, to verbalize in a way that is like immediately apparent to people, and that you know, like I think there's probably a point in a lot of disabled people's life where they do just you know wish that they could have been you know, like quote unquote normal. A lot of this movie was was kind of. If, if this movie had sort of caught me in a different mood, I probably would have found it a lot heavier than I did. Like I watched it when I was feeling pretty okay, and I was able to just sort of have the like cerebral distance to go. Oh yeah, that's interesting. But like I think if I if I'd watched this if I'd watched this movie last year, um, it probably would have wrecked me. Because <laughs> um, don't get me wrong, I, I did get like quite emotional watching it, and I did oh, yeah. sort of, was very sort of moved and touched by like various scenes in it, but. I think last year I probably would have just ended up with you know with me just lying on my bed staring at the ceiling for a week. Um. I, I well, I mean one of the things I really really like about this film adaptation is it deals with ugly and heavy issues, but it uses visual, it uses color and motion and design beautifully, which you know it creates this optimistic to neutral space that yes these characters hate themselves and are struggling, and the wider universe is in a way being indifferent but that really expresses what i love about animation as an art form it's intent beyond cinematography it's intent beyond actors taking direction you know and it's this level of creative intensity that always keeps me coming back to cartoons and disney and anime and stuff like that because it's 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 a difficult subject matter film but it doesn't overburden you if this was a live action movie coming from the u.s it'd probably have a blue palette a really somber score you know it have a, a depressing visual language and this film does not have that at all it makes it a lot easier to actually think about what it's presenting instead of only emotionally responding although that's also very very important and it's made in a very emotional way i mean the emotional response to it is probably most 
you know, it, it's an important. It's, it's this film is a practice in empathy with watching. You know, you you're practicing empathy by watching this film, and it's an experience of understanding that our voices and our communication goes again, like animation beyond words or cultural standards. It's that we're all complex beings who understand ourselves and communicate within ourselves in abstract ways. And how, how do you go from that jumble in your own head to expressing yourself and your intent and desires and will out of your head, (laughs) you know? And I, and I think that's where the suicides are really, or suicide attempts are, are lynch pinned in is that they they don't have a way of communicating within themselves that that gets to the point where they, you know, attempt to end their lives or think or, you know, think about it or have the intent to end their lives. Yeah, um, it's interesting you say about um, what this would have been like as an American movie. Uh, One thing I wanted to sort of bring up in relation to this is um, there's a movie that that I've been wanting to see for a while. I haven't actually been able to find uh, a copy of it anywhere that I can see. Um, You know, I, I sort of hunt for it a lot, like... Um, there's a movie called The Tribe uh, from 2014. It's an Ukrainian movie. Uh, it's set in a boarding school for deaf teenagers. Chrissy, have you seen the movie Brick? Um, yes. If if I say like high school noir, it it's kind of a little bit like that. Um, it's set in a boarding school for the deaf, and the sort of the interesting thing about it is, um, the film is entirely in Ukrainian sign language, mm. and it it's it's not subtitled. So like. Unless unless you speak Ukrainian sign language, you're not. You, you, you know, have to like, infer based on everything else. It might it might as well be a silent movie. That's like a really interesting use of film to tell a story about deafness. Because I know that like because I've you know because I've seen like reviews of it and stuff on the internet, or you know people have mentioned it and people were saying it's like, you know, well if they don't subtitle it, how are you supposed to know what people are saying? And it's like, hi, welcome to every deaf person's life ever. <laughs> yeah, it's like. <laughs> Could you, could you not understand that maybe that that's what the filmmakers are going for? They want to, you know, show that, that, again, that kind of like that, you know, the feeling of isolation that you would get from being unable to communicate or understand. I think from what, I've, from what I understand uh, from people who have seen it, who don't speak Ukrainian sign language, that, you know, the story is comprehensible. It's still like a comprehensible story. And like all you, all that like, understand, you know, all that being able to understand the character's dialogue would add to it is a greater understanding of a scene that is in itself, you know, ex- explicable. Yeah, it contains like elements of, of things like like drug use and prostitution and, and 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 stuff like that. And I know for like for certain people, the idea of a film like that, which is being told entirely in sign language, they might sort of view the sort of the deafness angle as almost like a gimmick. But um, from what I know from people who've seen it, they've said like it is actually like. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, where you say, well, why did the filmmakers tell the story in sign language? And it's, well, why not? Yeah. If you're looking for some kind of symbolic meaning from the, the, the you know, all the characters being deaf, it's like, maybe there kind of isn't one other than, you know, deaf people exist and, you know, have, have lives that can be just as intricate and complex as the lives of hearing people. So, that. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so um, I, I found, uh, I found a silent voice uh, very interesting. Uh, I am, as I said, I am planning on reading the manga, partly just because like, I like the story and I'd like to experience it like in another form, and see how it sort of works in its like original <laughs> form, and see kind of like what you know artistic choice. And like I've and I've checked, I've I've checked the manga, I've looked at it, and I know that you know I'm not heading into another from the new world situation. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, no, you're good. <laughs> uh, 
so yeah uh, i really enjoyed the silent voice uh thank you for recommending <laughs> it to me uh i thoroughly enjoyed it i kind of I, i've kind of touched on everything that i wanted to say i got two things one <laughs> there's a, this is just extra information not you know difficult subject matter at all but in the film when um shogo tries to tell shoya that she loves him the confession scene and he goes he misunderstands what she says and he says the moon um that because there's the moon behind her and it two words i love you and the moon are similar sounding there's a very famous japanese novelist who's also a great professor and teacher um natsume soke and he translates or he teaches or he originally taught <laughs> his students that if you're going to translate the english word phrase i love you you would translate it as the moon is beautiful um because japanese is more about again inferring emotional comprehension as opposed to just i love you <laughs> um so that was just a really really interesting funny poignant scene that i think slips by a lot of <laughs> european and american non-japanese speaking uh viewers <laughs> so it's 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 devastating because you're like oh he doesn't understand but then at the same time it has a subtle touch of of you know i guess foreshadowing even that he he does kind of get the idea <laughs> or he misunderstands but in the same way as the intent you know the moon <laughs> it's still beautiful i love you i don't know anyway <laughs> uh, i love that part kills me every time um and the second thing is that because you mentioned it the bad sleep well is a akira kurosawa film and it's based on hamlet so if you want to check that out <laughs> yeah i'm aware of that's um toshiro mifune and it's like a, a corporate um i just wanted you to know just in case you didn't know i knew that you probably did but even also our listeners <laughs> they're looking for a japanese hamlet there you go the bad sleep well Right, so I think that's probably that's probably us for this episode where we yeah that was an intense yeah so uh, as always we will uh, reconvene in two weeks uh, with some more recommendations hopefully I won't uh, accidentally tread on uh, Christy's toes <laughs> again in the meantime by <laughs> finding the thing that she was playing recommending to me. <laughs> no <laughs> it's all good if you get two for two next week I'm gonna like I'll eat the paper okay. <laughs> Don't, I'll don't do it. Paper. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's gonna happen. <laughs> if, you fo- it, so if you follow Chrissy on Twitter um, at ReadyMind, you may get like a selfie of her eating a piece of paper yeah. like a ghost. I've just gotta not talk about things that I'm interested <laughs> no, no, in for no, two no, weeks. No. Don't do that. <laughs> no, just like I'll, I'll only talk about like stuff that you know I'm into. <laughs> I'll just put everything on the back burner for a while. <laughs> um, uh, right, so uh, Christy, thank you again for for doing this stupid bullshit with me (laughs) i like our super bullshit i look forward to it i got my notes i'm sitting here i'm having a nice conversation with an adult who can talk words that's being generous honestly um (laughs) right so um thank you thank you for thank you for listening to us uh waffle back and forwards however long this ends up being uh and join us again in two weeks so bye aloha (laughs) 